In just over a month, Israel will turn 75. Now, to be correct, the modern state of Israel will turn 75 on May 14, 2023. Any student of history will tell you that Israel's existed in various forms for thousands of years. Jerusalem named its capital millennia ago. But the modern state, though, it's very different from Israel of the past, even its recent colonial past, where it seems every empire occupied it at one time or another. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly, your host for the Full Comment Podcast, and I hope we stay with us through the next little while as we look into this country, its history, and its very interesting present, because if you've seen the headlines at all, there's a very good chance that Israel's 75th anniversary will not be a happy anniversary for the political class, an attempt to bring in some reforms, especially judicial reforms, have, well, resulted in protests, outrage, resignations, and political fights like we haven't seen before. I want to bring in our next guest who will know all about this. Vivian Berkovich served as Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2014 to 2016. Prior to that, she was a partner at the law firm Heenan Blakey in Toronto, served on the board of CBC, something I'll try and forgive her for. She also had a career that spanned commercial law, insurance, and a stint working in Ontario's finance minister, uh, Ernie Eve's office in the early days of the Harris government. She joins us today from Tel Aviv. Thanks for joining us, Vivian. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. So walk us through exactly what is happening now. Just try and be as bare bones as you can for, for people that haven't been following this because the controversy has been bubbling for a little bit. I remember watching a CNN Anderson Cooper interview with Benjamin Netanyahu uh, seems like a couple of months ago now, and it was just starting then, but it wasn't where it is now. And he talked about judicial reforms, and I thought that's not something that normally gets people excited. That's not the case here. What's happening? Well, he calls it judicial reform, but the truth is um, what he's trying to ram through the Knesset, the legislature here, in record time is a complete remaking of the political, social, and economic arrangements in Israel between its citizens. So they call it judicial reform, but it's much more than that. And should his plans or the proposed legislation actually pass or be rammed through the Knesset, uh, many, myself included, think that Israel will no longer be a liberal democracy. Explain that to me then, because... um one of the reforms is allowing the Knesset to override the Supreme Court in Israel. And that seems to be one of the more contentious ones. That's something that we have in Canada in the notwithstanding clause. And Netanyahu himself says it's mirrored on what Canada and several other democracies do. So is that the main sticking point that you're looking at right now? So, let me just deal with the dispense with the notwithstanding clause or what they call the override clause here very quickly, um, because that's actually the least of, of the of the problems and the issues. And you're quite right that Netanyahu has taken to making comparisons between Israel and Canada and saying, hey, you know, you don't call Canada non-democratic and they do the same thing. The proposed override clause here is absolutely it's night and day. It's apples and oranges if you compare it to the Canadian notwithstanding clause. Um, and so park that for a moment because that's actually not the main issue. Um, the main issue, and I'll keep it really simple, um, are 
several chunks of legislation that are on on hold now. Netanyahu agreed the other day uh, to pause the the legislative process and to pick it up again on May 1st when the Knesset resumes sitting. Um, but one of the main kind of reforms has political parties, and it would be the political majority, controlling the judicial process, sorry, the judicial appointment process entirely. Okay, so most countries have variations on various committees or representations or rec- recommendations, hearings. Um, what is proposed here is that the parties in power will select judges. Um, and that's of concern because they will be selected presumably only based on their partisan pedigree. Um, but even more concerning is that the Knesset will pass a law that will say the Supreme Court of Israel no longer has jurisdiction to review any law. They're basically going to turn the Supreme Court of Israel into a kind of, you know, cartoon. Um, it will have no power. And so that means that you will have a panel of politically appointed judges who will have very little power. And you will have a Knesset controlled by a majority and any law that they pass has absolutely no checks, balances, and is not subject to judicial review. There is no Senate in Israel, okay? There's no upper chamber. There's no second look. So you will have complete, absolute power vested in the Knesset. And when you look at the Knesset today, I got to tell you, and what constitutes the governing coalition, it's a very scary proposition. I want to get into uh, the composition of governments, how they're chosen in Israel, and and all of that in a moment. But let's ask about the the Supreme Court, because I've even heard from people who oppose Netanyahu's changes, who've said, yeah, but the Israeli Supreme Court, they are kind of out of control. They do go too far. And so they probably do need some reform. Absolutely. Is, Is that fair? Is that accurate? Like, I understand that they declare uh, members of the Knesset unfit for office. That's not something you could do here. Uh, well, you might be surprised if you saw what they're putting in office here these days. But um, <laughs> to your main point, um, yeah, you're quite right that um, the Supreme Court, I think every single person in Israel, it's not a right-left issue. I think that it has become, it's gotten out of control. It's way beyond activist. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that having happened. I don't want to say that, you know, Supreme Court justices, you know, were evil and power grabbing. I think they were trying to do their best in a very complex environment without a constitution or a bill of rights and a really kind of crazy political environment. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Supreme Court and the justice system need um, reform. No question. So does the education system. So so does the social welfare system. But the way in which this is being carried out um, is just, it's surreal. You know, we have elections in Israel, and I won't get into this detail, but we have elections in Israel. Then there's all this kind of negotiating to put together a majority coalition. 
And that's done and every party makes their agreement with the lead party. The people of Israel did not vote on this proposed reform. It was never put before the people of Israel. There was some talk about, you know, changing the way judges are selected and this, but it was talk. There was nothing specific. And a few days after the coalition agreements are signed, all of a sudden, there's this super detailed reform plan that is dumped on the public. And it's really extreme. And the very heightened public reaction began immediately. This is regime change. This is not reform. And let me, I just want to add, because I think it's very relevant. You asked initially about the override clause. Um, and I agree with you. I think that the concept of the override clause in Israel is, is worse than menacing. Uh, it's very unlike our clause in Canada. Uh, basically, a bare majority of 61 out of 120 Knesset members could vote on anything, and that would override any court decision. But you know what? They don't need the override. Because once they jam through the judicial appointment reform, once they say, hey, court, you have no power, what do they need the override for? It's, it's, it's redundant. Okay, so I'll ask you to talk me through how judges are appointed in Israel now and how it will happen after this reform. Because judicial appointments, it's, it's tricky everywhere. Um, in the United States, it can be – we've got – in, in some instances, elected judges, in others, very politicized appointments. We like to think that we don't have a politicized judiciary in Canada. And then you look at how judges are appointed at the provincial level here in Ontario. The previous liberal government put in a system so that effectively, no matter who's in power, it's going to be liberal friendly judges who are appointed because of the way the system was set up. So it's not as if this is new um, public policy. Everybody wants to stack the courts in their favor, unfortunately, and it's done in different ways, sometimes overt, sometimes, you know, in hidden ways. So what's the system now? And in just briefly, what will it it be? I know you mentioned it earlier, but if we can do a compare and contrast here. Yeah, very briefly, because um, it's so complicated, but... Right now, there's a committee, and there it's basically the main uh, objection that the government has to the current appointments process is that the committee is just an insider's game. It's all lawyers. That and it's sounds like, like Ontario. That's but it's a you know it's look. I'm of the view that it's always going to be rigged. Okay, no matter what, it is everywhere. There's always, as you say, it's politicized. Uh, it's a matter of you know how publicly the how public is the politicization, but whoever's in power is going to put their friends on the bench. Uh, You know, in a democracy though, we kind of, you know, power, we like to think kind of ebbs and flows and moves a bit. And so over time, you know, things balance out. That's, you know, we always have these pendulums in a democracy. Um, What the government is saying here is that, uh, and it's all part very, very, very ugly identity driven politics. They started out with, you know, there's this leftist cabal, this cliquey, elitist kind of social group, all in Tel Aviv, the root of all evil, and um, and they want to control everything. And they have controlled everything since the establishment of the state. They're European Jews, and we've had it. They control the judicial appointments too. So look at who the judges are. They're all, you know, European Jews, not true. They're all left-wing, not true. Um and they all choose one another. 
So there is a committee and, you know, there are some politicians from various parties, but there's a belief on the part of this government that at the end of the day, it's the bench and their cronies that appoint and approve. There's some truth to that. They do hold the balance of power. Fine. So change it, but change it to something, you know, sensible. Um, What they want to change it to is uh, a committee that would be composed of politicians, but uh, the majority would, would always stack the committee. They would always, the majority in government would be a majority of the committee. So they don't, they would always choose their own. And you know what? And you and I could both say, okay, that doesn't sound so crazy. It's kind of that way everywhere. Um, what's unclear is what are going to be the criteria to be appointed a judge of the Supreme Court. Do you even have to be a lawyer? Or if you are a rabbi, is that going to allow you to be appointed a judge of the Supreme Court? Um, what is the term for the politicians who are put on this selection committee? Is it just the term of the government? Does it go on for 10 years? There are a lot of questions about how it's going to work. Um, but we don't know the answers to those yet. Uh, but if I had to guess, I would, I would guess that the intention is to stack it and to make the appointments for a good long time. Um, and I would have very serious concerns about what might be the, the threshold to even be considered to be appointed a judge at the Supreme Court of Israel. There should be standards. There should be thresholds. I absolutely agree. Um, mm. it, it sounds like you've got a, a system in need of reform now with some bad reforms being put forward to fix it. Um, I think that's absolutely right. But I think there's more to – this is about um, the nature of the coalition government, uh, their view of democracy, their views on religion and state. They don't actually care, most of this coalition government, about having a liberal democracy. They don't care about having a Supreme Court. They would be much happier with a state run according to Jewish law called halacha. They really just, they don't care. And they will tell you that very openly. Um, This isn't about judicial reform. This is about changing everything about the nature and character of the state of Israel. So just one example. The priority for the ultra-Orthodox, who comprise 13% of the population now, So of the 9 million Israelis, 20% are Arabs, 80% are Jews, 13% of that 100% are ultra-Orthodox. And they almost, like they're their own sort of autonomous society. Their number one priority, well, two priorities. One is to have all of the allowances that the state pays them so that they can study religion full-time and not work they're insisting that they go up very significantly. In tandem with that, they have always refused to serve in the armed forces, in the IDF. They've also refused to do national service, you know, kind of work in hospitals and with children or whatever their communities might need. Um, And they are demanding that by law, service in the IDF be considered no more important than full-time study of religion. And there are significant implications for that. 
they're basically saying they want a permanent exemption from the draft and military service. It's not sustainable. Are they effectively granted that exemption now? They are effectively. Um, And, you know, there are a few issues that kind of flow from that. I mean, I think that given their skills and lack of skills, like basic skills, because they don't learn things like math, science, or English, and just kind of really basic world, like life skills that your kids probably have. Um, You know, and for all kinds of reasons, they are very, very resistant to serving in the IDF, one being that most of them aren't even Zionists. They don't support the existence of the state of Israel. They believe only when the Messiah comes can the state of Israel come into being. So, you know, they wouldn't really be probably the greatest assets as soldiers, Um, but they can do community service. They can give to the state and support the state in some way that is of real value and share the burden. And they want exemption from everything because their view, and they're not shy about articulating it, is that, you know, we, people like me, we may think that, you know, it's the army that keeps us secure um, and the state of Israel flourishing, but actually it's their prayer and devotion that accomplishes that. So, I mean, we're talking about empowering uh, a really extreme section or cohort of society. And they're just one, there are others. How much of this is due to the fact that you've got the proportional representation system in, in Israel and you've got how many, uh, elections over the last several years, let's see, I've got a list here. You've had elections in November 2022, March 2021, March 2020, September 2019, April 2019. So that's five that I count. I may have missed one. Uh, but if I'm counting... I'm going into withdrawal now. If, yeah, we've had five in the last three years. And, and then, but before that, there was a relative stable period that went back to 2015. But yeah. all those elections, you've got the different attempts to form coalitions. And mm. do the people that form the coalitions end up pandering to extremist elements of either side. Well, Netanyahu does, Likud does, but particularly Benjamin Netanyahu, because he's also, listen, he's destroyed his own party. It's not what it was even five, six years ago. But yes, um, this man is determined to hold on to any power at any cost. Um, and uh, that requires him absolutely pandering to extremist groups. It's what he did. And that's why he's in power. And, you know, it's really, it's sadly, tragically ironic because when Netanyahu was Minister of Finance in the early 2000s, he was absolutely brilliant. And he said, you know, we can't sustain this economic burden with the ultra-Orthodox. And he really slashed and burned all of their very extreme entitlements. You know, and he said, all you guys do is, you know, have huge families, you make babies, and you don't work and you don't contribute. And we just can't do this. You know, he used the metaphor of the fat man, skinny man, how the skinny man is carrying this ever fatter man on his shoulders. um, And eventually he's going to collapse, which was his metaphor for the economy. And he did that. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, and the same guy is undoing all of that hard work. It'll destroy the country. That, along with so many other things, will absolutely destroy the country. Just can't. It's just not sustainable. 
and you and others have obviously, when you look at uh, the protests in the streets, have turned against them. I want to talk about that when we come back from our break because um, the numbers of people, the, the sheer size of the protests, is mind-boggling for here in Canada in this day and age. So we'll talk about that when we come back after this break. We used to have big political protests in Canada. I remember a protest against the Mike Harris government that uh, Vivian worked for many years ago, uh, having 100,000 people come out. We just don't have that happen anymore. But in Israel right now, which is a population far smaller than Canada, smaller than Ontario, they have had protests of 100, 150,000, 250,000, 500,000, depending on the news source and the location. And, and Vivio, and I, I want to ask you, is that normal in Israel, or have these changes, these reforms proposed by the Netanyahu government just made people say, okay, now, enough? Absolutely what you just ended with, enough. In Hebrew, it is adkan, like no further. Um, what's been going on for the last 12 weeks is extraordinary. I go to every Saturday night protest when I am in Israel. Uh, the first one was 12 weeks ago, and it was on a really, really rainy night, which is unusual in Israel. I mean, it rains sometimes, but it was pouring. And over 100,000 people turned out that first night in Tel Aviv. You got to understand, Israelis are really tough, um, but they, the, they are so weak and wimpy when it comes to weather. So, you know, it's kind of joke that <laughs> it's raining. It was like the sea of umbrellas, but, you know, uh, it was quite extraordinary that night. And that's when it started. And the numbers in Tel Aviv, initially it was just Tel Aviv, and they, they just grew every week and every week um, until uh, week 12, which we've just passed. And on Saturday night, uh, the Tel Aviv demonstration was around 160, 170,000. And Sunday, when frankly all hell broke loose, um, was over 200,000 in Tel Aviv. Um, and then there's the nationwide. So Saturday night was 160-ish in Tel Aviv. They were saying, I think, five 600 nationwide. Um, and Sunday was 200, 250-ish in Tel Aviv and close to a million, I heard. The truth is, though, it was so chaotic, spontaneous, last minute that, you know, we didn't even see, like, media or police drones in the sky on Sunday night, which you see all the time on Saturday. Like, no one was prepared. No one had time to to do anything. It literally sparked within five minutes. And the reason for this, just before, I, I need to make, it's such an important point is that there is a very entrenched perception that among Israel, many Israelis, that this is not about reform. This is about regime change. It's a velvet glove. It, it's this kind of slide into a kind of tyranny, dictatorship, autocracy, pick your poison very similar to what we've seen happen in Poland and Hungary in recent years. And I, I got to tell you, it's surreal to actually, you can kind of see it happening, but you just can't believe what you see happening. And I want to make clear, this isn't just the people, although the people are very important. This is all former heads of the Mossad, some of whom are personally close to Benjamin Netanyahu, all former and current governors of the Bank of Israel, all CEOs of major Israeli banks, all VCs, all tech industry CEOs, physicians, um, 
I, I, I could just go on and on and on. All the heads of Shin Bet, the Israeli FBI. This is not like a bunch of wacky lefties, which is what, you know, Netanyahu, he's been calling us anarchists for months and leftists. Um, that's not what this is. This is a really broadly based group of very significant leaders and regular folks who are freaked out. And that also includes, aside from the president of the United States, um, you know, Ben Bernanke, um, Jacob Frankel, one of the most preeminent economists who was also governor of the Bank of Israel for some time, who is now the C- the chair of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase International. Um, these people are, and Paul Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winner, who is also Israeli, these, these, this, this incredible the stature of these people. And they're saying, like, what are you doing? You're destroying the state. Because if you don't have a free and democratic state, everything falls apart here. Everything. The economic miracle, the tech miracle, everything. I want to read part of the res- uh, response that Netanyahu put out in the middle of the night, Tel Aviv time, uh, to comments by President yeah. Biden calling on him to uh, reconsider. And he said, uh, this is the quote from Netanyahu's statement. In part, he said, my administration is committed to strengthening democracy by restoring the proper balance between the three branches of government, which we are striving to achieve uh, via a broad consensus. Israel is a sovereign country, which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends. It was a polite, thank you for your, your views, Mr. Biden. Now go away. Uh, I, I can understand his desire to restore proper balance. I often think in our country, the proper balance is off. What I'm hearing you say is that Netanyahu's going too far for his own personal reasons, but also for coalition partners. Did you used to be a fan of, of Netanyahu? Um, I would say I was an admirer, not a fan. There were things I admired about him. I mean, my father and I used to have, you know, Great, uh, great arguments, because uh, he was a pretty hardcore Likudnik, uh, and I wasn't. Um, but I recognized him to be a brilliant, dedicated, great, uh, hard worker, great patriot, fabulous politician. Um, all of those things I can recognize, even if I don't personally, you know, support or admire an individual. Um, but this isn't about reform. And this is not about strengthening democracy by any stretch. You know, right. I asked you if we could delay this the taping of this so I could watch the top of the news tonight. Um, and you mentioned Biden and that was the top story. That's all that they were talking about for the first 10 minutes. This isn't a, a little kind of, you know, spat. Um, what the generals on TV were saying, um, and most people here are saying and thinking, this country doesn't exist without U.S. support militarily, or in any way. And the U.S. is not going to support Israel if we become um, a non-democratic kind of theocracy. And many of the coalition partners are, I mean, there's a whole other chunk of them that we haven't even talked about that are like criminals, terrorists. They're, they're really bad people. And... Um, these are the people he's putting in responsible, very senior cabinet positions running the country. The U.S. is looking at that and saying, like, you know, we support your military. We, we, we have your back at the U.N. We, we are there. 
but we will not support this. We won't support a non-democratic Israel. First time I um, met very briefly Benjamin Netanyahu and, and heard him speak was early 2000s. It was in that 2003 time frame. So he was either foreign affairs or he just left that for finance. And he was touring Canada and went to hear him speak in Ottawa. Uh, very impressive man. Unbelievably, yeah. And in, in terms of his ability to articulate issues. You know, since then, he's been prime minister several times, and he has survived and changed. And is so he's obviously a survivor. Does he survive this? Does Israel head to another election? Um, does the international pressure force his hand? So I, I'm glad that you, you had the opportunity to experience um, Netanyahu in person. I, I've been in his company many times. I don't think I've ever uh, encountered someone. He's so charismatic. He's so brilliant. He's so articulate. Um, he doesn't have the highest EQ in the world, but he does have a way of connecting with a room, right? And with individuals. And he can disarm people quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, in a personal way. I don't mean Absolutely. Charming. You know, due to his military Charming. background. Just walks in the room and charms yeah. you. No, he, he owns the room. He like That's the charisma factor. And, and there are, listen, people here are so angry with him and they're so disappointed. Like everyone, if people didn't support him like me, you know, he's done so much for this country. His family has done so much. They've devoted their lives to this country. His brother gave his life. His legacy up until a few years ago was absolutely brilliant and it won't be anymore. And that's really sad. You don't wish that on anyone. Um, to your question, you know, where does it all go? Boy, if I had the answer to that, so let me, let me offer this, this thought. Um, Person after person after person has gone on television and made public statements lately. And these aren't, you know, um, shallow or, or, you know, frivolous people. Uh, these are really serious people like Yossi Cohen, the head of the Mossad. Um, like a man named Nadav Argaman, who until I think about a few months ago was the head of Shin Bet, the Israeli FBI. Very serious people, the heads, former heads of the Air Force, former heads of the IDF are coming out one after another publicly and saying, this is not the same ben Benjamin Netanyahu, not only that I knew, but who I knew a few years ago. Tamir Pardo, a former head of the Mossad for seven or eight years, who served and reported to Benjamin Netanyahu, um, he came out tonight and he said, uh, he, he's, he's got to be removed from office. And <laughs> this is extraordinary that these people are saying this. Um, a lot of people who knew him well say that there's much more to this than just clinging to power or not wanting to, you know, go to jail because of his corruption trial. If there was ever an illustration for why Israeli justice system needs reform, it's that. But these people are saying that something has changed in him. And that he has come to see himself as something of a kind of, you know, this is his destiny. No one else can lead the state of Israel, only him. And he will stop at nothing to hold on to power. And I think that 
that's probably not an incorrect analysis. I mean, what he did last weekend was just incomprehensible. And that led to um, Sunday night when I was out on the streets and on the highways with over 200,000 other people in Tel Aviv. And we all had the sense, and I believe strongly, that was the first day of what will become a civil war. I think we'll look back in a few years and that will be the day because everything changed. An actual shooting war or? Uh, I think there will be violence. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, Benjamin look, Netanyahu, cracks he, in his coalition. He will not, this is, we're way beyond that. He won't, um, he will not back down from this legislation, even though he says he's, he's going to sit for talks and we're going to look for compromise and consensus. He says that on one side of his mouth and on the other side, he says something completely different. The minister of justice today was saying, ah, you know what? We're just kind of like going to enjoy the holidays and we're going to come back. And we're just jamming it through again. Um, and that's consistent with how BB usually operates. Um, so he, he lost his defense minister the other, well, fired his defense minister, who uh, Yoav Gallant was uh, a member of his own Likud party, um, called for Netanyahu to reconsider, got fired. So if he's going to be firing people within his own party, that could speak to a fracture of the coalition. If that happens, who's there to replace him? You always have to ask, and, and, and I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying, but who's the alternative in, in Israel? Because sometimes the alternative's worse, or sometimes it's better. Who's the alternative in Israel? If you're asking me who's the alternative in Israel, I would say, and I believe me, I'm surprised to hear myself saying this, I would say at the moment, Benny Gantz, okay, who's in the opposition. Um, if you're asking me who's the alternative in the Likud party, I'm going to tell you there's nobody. There's just nobody. Benjamin Netanyahu has been ruling that party like a tyrant for years. Um, most, almost all of the people who were any good and had integrity have defected, left, gone to other parties. What's left is not the cream of the crop. Um, uh, him firing people within his own party is nothing new. Uh, him talking out of both sides of his mouth is nothing new. Uh, there's a lot of people he's left, you know, under a lot of buses. Um, and he's also very masterful, you know, the other side of him, the brilliance and the charisma and all the wonderful things that you and I spoke about earlier. Um, there's a Ruth, very ruthless side to him. And, um, there is no one in the party now who is a leadership contender. Uh, what he did in firing Gallant when the consensus among all of the military, all of the Shin Bet, all of the former Mossad and military, etc., is that Israel at the moment is in possibly the most precarious security situation that it has ever been in since the state was founded. About a week ago, they were saying since 1973, which is saying a lot because the country almost went down. That was an existential war militarily. What they're saying now is ever. That's how serious it is. And the one thing that everybody respects in this country is the IDF. It's the most respected institution. And when the head of the IDF, when the chief of staff, when your minister, and when your minister of defense are, and the head of the Shin Bet are all saying, We've got to stop the strife. We've got to pause this legislation that's tearing the nation apart because we are in a boiling pot of water. That's his job. It's a sacred duty of the Minister of Defense. So when he fired Gallant, the lid blew off the pot here. Talk about tripping wires or crossing red lines. That's a sacred, sacred trust. 
weeks to the anniversary of Israel's 75th. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I said off the top, it may not be a happy anniversary. Maybe it will be for for the people of Israel, but if they're this upset, maybe not. Um, obviously, it won't be for the political class. How does this affect what should have been a, an absolutely happy moment? Deeply. Uh, there were a number of reasons that the then Netanyahu said, okay, we're going to pause for a month. Um, and, you know, one is that Passover, which is an important holiday in the Jewish cal- calendar, is upon us next week. Um, but more importantly, probably the two most important days in the Israeli calendar are Independence Day and Memorial Day. Uh, and it's very moving every year. It doesn't matter how many times you experience it. Memorial Day, of course, is when the country remembers fallen soldiers or people who were killed in terror attacks. And it's a very, very intense, heavy, solemn day. And it ends and moves right into Independence Day, which is a party like you've never experienced because it is the truest joy. Like, wow, we're still here a year later. He did the pause because of those two days. Because we are 75 and people are feeling we can't even celebrate. But here's how extraordinary it is. The ceremonies and memorials on Memorial Day in Israel every year are everywhere and so moving. And there are military ceremonies and there are bereaved families and everyone in this country is touched. Every single school has a ceremony, you know, at, in the, at night with parents and the community. It's, a, it's an incredible part of the national culture. And everyone is saying this year, Politicians, stay away. Don't come to military ceremonies. Don't come to any of our ceremonies. We don't want you. I mean, that just gives me shivers. And that tells you how torn apart things are here. So will it be happy? I don't think so. I don't. I'm sorry to say. Vivian, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. Vivian Berkovich is the former Canadian ambassador to Israel. She is also the host of the State of Tel Aviv podcast. You can find that at stateoftelaviv.com. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly. Your host, this episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, anywhere really, that you get podcasts, listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices, and you can help us by leaving us a review, a rating, telling your friends about us. Until next time, thanks for listening.